Welcome to Vegas Inc. Radio. I'm Dylan Goldberg, host of the show and business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. Over the next half hour, we'll be discussing mom-and-pop businesses that have found success in the Las Vegas Valley, as well as new planes coming into McCarran International Airport. But first, we turn our attention to the hated resort fees. Several uh, local casinos have instituted them recently, most recently being Caesars in the South Point. And joining us now to talk about it are reporters Rick Vallada and Ed Comenda. Welcome, Rick. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, Ed, you had a recent story last week about the South Point, and they're the latest to try and presumably boost profits and stick it to the tourists with some extra costs. Tell us about that. Well, South Point, uh, as of March 1st, adopted resort fees that are $12 plus tax. It's $14, and it includes things like Wi-Fi, valet parking, uh, boarding pass printing, things that you would typically get at other resorts that charge fees. Uh, they actually haven't come forward with a reason, um, like Caesars did. They said that um, their, their patrons they wanted a, uh, a package fee rather than several separate fees. Um, you know, but that's that's pretty much where we're at. It's kind of this this growing uh, move toward resort fees. Another one. Now, in all fairness, Michael Gon, who owns South Point and Caesars Entertainment, are not alone in charging these resort fees. MGM Resorts, pretty much all the big casinos definitely on the Strip charge these fees. However, there's a sizable list of resorts, mostly downtown and off-Strip, that don't. Rick, what's the thinking? I mean, should we expect all of them to join the resort fee list soon? Yeah, I guess it wouldn't shock me too much if uh, a lot more of them did come aboard, uh, with, especially with the, the Caesars properties uh, uh, you know, one of the one of the leaders on the strip doing this, uh, but you know, this is w- also another way that uh, a smaller resort property could market itself against some of the big guys by saying, "Hey, we don't have the resort fee," and, and it all comes down to this this theory of bundling versus unbundling. Uh, obviously, nobody likes to see these types of things, but at the same time, you 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 have this. This mentality out there that um, you know they're going to nickel and dime me for everything, so why not just put one big fee in there and have it done with? And I think that that's kind of the the direction that uh, that uh, that Caesars and South Point have been uh, d- discussing because uh, I think that they see value in just saying, okay, we're going to charge you this this fee this one time, and it's by day, isn't it? It's, it's nightly, it's a, a right. nightly fee. So it's not like. Um, you know, this is like 14 bucks and you're done at South Point. This is 14 bucks times however many days that you stay there. So um, it actually adds up uh, pretty significantly. Now, the, of course, the other side of the argument is that, well, maybe I don't use the spa or maybe I don't use the pool or maybe I, I don't have Wi-Fi or I don't care about Wi-Fi, so I can just pick and choose what, uh, what I would rather buy. Um, you know, it all works out in the end that you're going to pay something for the services, um, it's just a matter of whether you pay for things that you don't use uh, and pay it once, or if you pay for things that you do use um, and maybe a smaller fee at that. Well, and both of you alluded to it, but perhaps the biggest part of the resort fee story is Caesars Entertainment 
defending their choice to institute these fees by saying customers asked for it. And I think maybe that that's a slight miscategorization. I mean, I don't think people asked for, hey, charge us more. But like you said, Rick and Ed, that um, you know, instead of paying piecemeal for Wi-Fi and extra amenities, they want one bulk fee. Do people get a good deal by paying $14 or some of them are up to $25 a night? Um, do, does the average traveler benefit from that? Uh, just just my own perception of it is that uh, you're actually losing out if you pay the bundled fee. Um, paying that that uh, $14 a night or or up to $25 a night, whatever it is at the particular resort that you're staying at, uh, I'm not sure that you would use all the benefits that that pays for. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny because this, this argument parallels to some of the airline discussions that we have regarding fees for, for what they have. And uh, I think you're just going to have a very basic philosophical side that you have to take, whether you are a bundled person or an unbundled person. And, uh, you know, there are going to be some people who really like the idea of just paying that one time. Uh, but I think that w- when you when you actually do the calculations, you'll find that you're going to be paying more in the long run if you pay uh, that bundled fee as opposed to picking and choosing what you want and paying for just what you like. Right, absolutely. And you, you mentioned marketing. And Caesars prided itself on having no resort fees for a long time. Right. In, in 2010, they had this campaign uh, against resort fees. They even had a, a Facebook page that was trying to uh, bring in uh, patrons that, that um, were, were feeling maybe swindled by other resorts that were charging fees. And so that's what made Caesars' decision to do this so surprising, uh, having spent a couple years uh, using this campaign against resort fees. So... Certainly interesting. You know, and, and the, the, I think the funny thing is that uh, uh, if I can use another airline parallel here, and that is that Southwest, they have this fantastic marketing plan where bags fly free. Okay, well, uh, just about every other airline out there charges something for you to to take some some suitcases with you. So they're, they're making a lot of hay by, by saying bags fly free, and that's what everybody remembers. When the commercials come on, they say, all right, that's the airline that, that doesn't charge me anything for bags. Well, the, the, the fact is, is that the, the fare might be a little bit higher than somebody else's. Right. No, absolutely. But I guess from a marketing, if, if only PR standpoint as opposed to a mathematical calculation, something can be said for, as a customer, I know what I'm paying up front, and the feeling that I'm not trying to be nickel and dimed. I right. think Southwest is doing really phenomenal with that business plan as opposed to some of our other local, you know, Legion Air and Spirit and the the ones who charge these uh, unbundled fees, if you will. Mm-hmm. So do you think um, hotels like El Cortez, Four Queens, The D, LVH, those are among the ones who don't charge um, resort fees. Can they capitalize on this? Do you think we'll see Facebook pages from them? Um, I guess they could, as Rick said said earlier, it could be a, an opportunity that uh, um, for them to go against the bigger guy. I, I don't know if they'll actually do it, um, just because um, you know people like Caesars are just so much bigger, and you know they'll just keep doing what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think though that if I were a marketing person for one of those, that'd be one of the first things that I'd want to do is make sure that everybody out there knows that I do not charge the, uh, the, the resort fee uh, because that, in some people's minds, that will make the difference. I mean, it's, it's okay if I pay 
you know, two hundred dollars a night for a room. But if I don't have to pay that extra fifteen dollars, wow, that's that's fantastic. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy as far as the logic is concerned. But at the same time, there are people who who feel like they're really getting a deal if they don't have to uh, pay uh, various fees for for different things, uh, even though the uh, overall resort fee might be more in the long run. And I think you're exactly right. Judging by our Vegas Inc. commenters, people went nuts for both of these stories and overwhelmingly against the casinos instituting these resort fees. And the same people, I, I would imagine, have no problem dropping that 15 or 20 bucks on some fancy cocktail in one of the casino hotels oh, or, or on a blackjack. Exactly, blackjack <laughs> table, but um, they don't like the, the fees. Well, it's interesting that a lot of these people, uh, if we're, we're going off what, what the commenters are saying, they had been going to some of these, these resorts because they didn't have fees, and when they, they go to book their next thing, it's this uh, surprise fee, you know, and they're they're not happy about it, some of them. Well, and that's right, Ed. You bring up an interesting point in that a lot of these fees, some of the resorts, to their credit, are very upfront about we have resort fees, here's what it's going to cost you. Others, I've heard, you know, anecdotally, people surprised that they, they're they expecting one total and they get another, and it's it's not always as upfront. And, and part of the problem with that is that the, the resort fee is not built into the initial booking. I... I I've actually done some staycations here in Las Vegas where I've uh, I've booked online on the website of the of the hotel and I'm not going to say which one it is but then uh, when it came to the end of my stay they said oh by the way you uh, owe an extra x number of dollars for the resort fee do you want me to put it on the credit card that you have given me as a as as part of your your bill and at that point in time was really the first I knew that there was a resort fee involved so it, it does pay for people who are going to be staying at the resorts to ask up front if there is a resort fee or if it's uh, built into the uh, overall cost of the of the stay. So it's kind of a buyer beware type of thing. They need to know. Consumers need to know that type of stuff. Absolutely. Are, are these negotiable at all? I mean, if at the end of your stay you say, hey, I didn't use the spa, I didn't play on my iPhone. I don't think so. I think that uh, especially if they have an overall resort fee, um, you're going to be hard pressed to be able to talk yourself out or talk your way out of having to pay for something like that. See, it's actually interesting because uh, UNLV did a recent study. It, it was a survey of something like 200 people on the strip, and uh, 80% of those people said they didn't choose their resorts based on the fees. But of those 200 people, 30% of them said they they didn't really value what they were paying for. So, so most people are you know running around the strip or. You know whatever they choose to do, it's a it's a good question to see if they're actually getting what they paid for. You know, so well, absolutely, all those marketing folks who take our advice can send the fruit baskets to Vegas Inc. when people <laughs> flood their uh, resort fee free hotels. I'll also another shameless plug for Vegas Inc. If you visit our website vegasinc.com, we've got a list courtesy of our sister company Vegas.com of all the hotels in Las Vegas and the Valley and whether or not they charge resort fees, what those resort fees are, and what you get for your money. Thank you so much, uh, Ed, for joining us. Thanks, Rick. We'll be talking to you some more after the break. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up with the Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. I'm your host, Dylan Goldberg, business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. All right, we're back now with Rick Vallada. And you've done a lot of work on our local airline of sorts, Allegiant Air. And there's some good news with the new... uh, 
jet coming our way and for the company. And there's some maybe not so good news with some <laughs> turmoil with the flight attendants, or turbulence, I should say. What's going on? Well, uh, let's talk the, uh, the the good news first, I guess. And that would be that the, uh, the company has made a decision to um, get a new aircraft type. And, I mean, that's not real sexy, exciting on the top until you start seeing all the benefits that are, are derived from this new plane. It's a Airbus-made uh, uh, model called an A319, uh, and then they're also uh, an A320. And for, for those who, who don't know airplanes, it's it's probably the most common type of aircraft that you're going to see. A Boeing 737's got a wing uh, or two two engines on the wings, and the Airbus A319, A320 are the equivalent of the 737. So a very popular model. Well, the thing about this type of a plane is that it's far more fuel efficient than the fleet that they have now. They have a, a, a fleet of uh, MD-80 jets, and those uh, are, frankly, they're, they're gas guzzlers. They, uh, they, they use a lot of fuel. They, they don't have a lot of range. So uh, when they fly them, they, uh, they, you know, they're, they're making money, obviously, when they, when they fly. But with these new models, they're going to be able to put more passengers in per plane, and they're going to have about 25% less fuel spent when they, when they make a, an equivalent journey on them. Well, that's, that's fantastic because the, that all goes to the bottom line. So uh, in the MD-80s right now, the capacity is um, 164, I believe, passengers, with the with the MD, um, uh, or excuse me, with the uh, A319s and the A320s, the capacity is going to go up uh, to like 175 for the the smaller unit. And so right there, you've got additional seats. Uh, and Allegiant traditionally they fill up their their aircrafts pretty well because they only have a limited number of flights to the places that they do go. So um, it's it's a win win for the company in terms of the economics of this plane. Now, they're only going to get 18 of these initially, uh, but uh, the game plan for Allegiant is to stock the fleet, and eventually they'll just start retiring the old MD-80 jets and build or, or buy more uh, of these Airbus jets as they become available. And this, is, this has been their strategy ever since they've uh, begun. They, they, they go out and buy uh, used airplanes that still have a lot of life in them and are still safe, and then they... Uh, just use those flight hours, and they uh, uh, find a way to uh, to make it a, a an economic benefit for the for the whole company. And why would a company sell a perfectly usable airplane? Well, because there are newer airplanes that are coming out there, and some of these uh, some of these companies that uh, have sold them, uh, Iberia in in Spain, they're going to be looking at larger models and different types of things, upgrades to what they currently have. Um, so. To, to, to Allegiant, this is an upgrade to them, uh, but there are, they're certainly not brand new. So there's a, a lot of things that are coming up, coming out, uh, that are even more advanced than the ones that, uh, that uh, Iberia would be buying uh, on the open market, brand new and much more expensive too. I can imagine. Now, two consumer questions. One, 25% fuel savings, that's great. Does that mean we're going to see 25% Cheaper airline tickets? Doubtfully. Right. I, I think that uh, what, what the, the, the idea, I think, is that uh, they will be able to maintain low, lower uh, fares. And right now, Allegiant markets itself as a, as a very low discounted uh, air, airline. But um, the, you know, the, the, the black mark against them is the fact that they charge a lot of fees. And this is something that consumers complain about. In fact, we we talked about that in the segment uh, earlier there about the uh, about that. But 
the, the fact is, is that they're not uh, likely to uh, reduce fares, but if they can maintain something that's low now for a longer period of time, I think overall that's going to be good for consumers. Absolutely. Good for Las Vegas, too. Yeah, because they're a Las Vegas-based company and fly many flights out of here. Um, The other question, our readers might think that more seats might necessarily mean less legroom, but in fact, they're comfier. Well, they they are a little bit. uh, I mean, for most people, the average passenger, they're not going to see any difference. Uh, But the fact is, is that the the fuselage, the, the, the tube that you're sitting in is wider uh, taller than the MD-80 uh, aircraft, so there is a little bit more room. Uh, uh, and, and the number of seats that they put in there, uh, how wide is it? Well, in an MD-80, you can only put five across. In this, you can put six across, and there's the, and the seats are a little bit bigger. So you, you can kind of figure out the math there that it's, that it's actually a, a, going to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, in, the, in the long haul, though, I think most people aren't going to see a whole lot of difference. So still not great news for tall guys like you and right, my husband. Right. <laughs> uh, now, what's going on with the flight attendants? They are not as pleased with Allegiant as perhaps some others. Well, p- part of the issue on the on the on that is that um, uh, for this is the first contract that uh, Allegiant has ever had, not just with the flight attendants, but any work group within the within the airline. So um, there's there's a little bit of friction there going on uh, right off the top. So th- there are a number of tactics that the uh, uh, transportation or transport workers union are are uh, using to kind of embarrass the airline, and and this is something that uh, I kind of have a hard time figuring out because uh, it seems to me that uh, you'd want to try to get as many customers as you can to fill your airplanes so you can make a lot of money, and um, you know it goes to the shareholders, it goes to new equipment, and oh by the way, it also goes to your salaries. Um, but uh, that the tactic basically is to call out uh, Allegiant for the fees that they charge. They've also had um, um, a campaign in which they've uh, made note of the fact that uh, Allegiant is very quick to pull the trigger on uh, removing itself from a market. If the market doesn't pan out very well, and they can tell this by advanced sales, they will quickly remove itself from that market. And sometimes that leads to some problems in terms of you know, if I if I buy a ticket for Billings, Montana, in uh, in uh, July, and they decide they're going to pull out in April, well, then that inconveniences me, and obviously I'm going to have to try to find a new way to get there that's not going to be as uh, as inexpensive as it is on Allegiant. So they they've pointed that out in with, with a website that's called Will Allegiant Be There? Uh, so those are the tactics that have uh, the management at Allegiant Air. Uh, kind of uh, uh, upset. Uh, they, they try not to let it get under their skin, but, you know, something like that. It's something that uh, that the management isn't uh, too crazy about. Uh, Maurice Gallagher, the uh, CEO and founder of the airline, has basically gone on record from day one saying, you know, I don't like third-party uh, uh, middlemen working on contracts. So he's got a built-in bias against unions anyway. And I don't think that uh, some of the tactics that the transport workers union are using are going to endear themselves to him anymore. Right. No. And tactics aside, do you think these arguments are valid, or are they just nitpicking for negotiation? Well, I, I think that that um, you know, obviously, we we've talked about the fact that uh, some people are going to like bundled pricing and some are not. 
if you have a uh, if you don't like that uh, t if you if you'd rather uh, use the the bundled side side of things then then you don't want to fly Allegiant you'd rather probably be more beneficial doing something else although Allegiant only flies to some small cities from here and it's not easy to get a nonstop flight to some of the small markets that they that they fly to right. so it's it's not as if the um, uh, it's something that, that consumers are going to, to jump for joy over, but at the same time, it is a tactic that the union uses to try to press them, to press the airline to get this first contract. And, and like I said, the, the first one's always the toughest one because there's no point of reference. Uh, you know, you, you can't uh, go up or down from what you already have in place. You have to come up with something that's mutually beneficial to everybody, uh, or at least that's the, that's the hope. So far, we haven't seen that, and these contract negotiations have been going on. They're at an impasse. Well, and we've seen that on the Strip. We've seen that downtown. Yes, it, we have. It's, it's a common story. What do you see the end game of this being? Well, I, I think eventually they'll they'll come to some some common ground on uh, on on developing a contract, and hopefully, uh, once that is done, then the uh, some of the tactics of the the TWU will will go away. Um, because I, I'm sure that there are a lot of uh, employees who are probably uncomfortable with those types of tactics in order to to make a point. Um, you know, the the other thing, this is this is what unions do. They 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 try to make a point, and and I get it, I understand it. Last week we had an instance where there was a scheduled uh, civil disobedience on the strip uh, involving the the culinary. So you know, these are just tactics to call attention. To the contract, and while uh, you know the the consumer loses because uh, uh, things are, are 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 not going to be the way they want them to, they may be inconvenienced in some way. But this is the way that that some of these uh, organizations need to use in order to make a point and to get what they want in their contracts. Well, you'll have to keep us posted on what's happening and when we can expect those new we'll planes. We'll definitely and do that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. Rick Velada is a business reporter for VegasInc.com and LasVegasSun.com. You can follow his coverage there and in Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun print editions. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. Joining us now is business reporter Eli Siegel. Welcome, Eli. Hi, Dylan. Vegas Inc., we recently had a cover story this week about small businesses, mom-and-pop operations that are doing well, despite a lot of the horror stories we hear out there, especially in this kind of economy or the economy we had the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, for a little statistic here, 49% of all mom-and-pop operations fail in their first five years, which is not... A very encouraging number. No, not at all. That being said, if you look at the glass half full, um, 51% of them succeed, and you met with the owners of a couple of those. Um, let's start with Quality Shoe Repair and Luggage. It's a pretty fascinating store. What do they do there? Well, that store has been in business for about six years. It's owned by a, uh, by a guy named John Goley, and he has been, he has built probably the most high volume, the highest volume, most unusual shoe repair store, at least that I've ever seen. And I say unusual only because they'll fix anything. I mean, it is not just come, you know, resole my dress shoe or uh, fix the zippers on my boots. I mean, th this guy does anything. You can bring him seat belts, uh, appliances, sofas. I mean, it doesn't matter. He'll he'll take it and he'll fix it. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. And he's got a very high volume store. I think they fix more than 100 pairs of shoes a day. And he told me that they earn about 
uh, more than $30,000 a month in revenue. And, it's pretty um, staggering. Oh, for a shoe repair shop. I, I mean, that has to be at the at one of the highest levels, absolutely. And what's some of the secrets to his success? Well, he has a real knack for marketing, actually. When when I was talking with him, he has he, he does some some quirky things and, and he does a lot of he does a lot of advertising, which is never a guarantee to to drum up business. You know, it, if anything, it's just going to raise publicity. But it, but it's never a guarantee to to bring in more sales. But he does a lot of advertising, which which I guess does help. But then he also has these quirky marketing campaigns where he has built out a, a fleet of cars to that to make them look like their shoes. So he's got what looks like kind of a flatbed truck of sorts that's been turned into a giant yellow high heel that sits in front of the store. And he's got plans for more of these types of shoe mobiles, if you want to call them. And uh, it's just, just some quirky stuff. And so that's really helped raise the visibility. But those kinds of things are only going to go so far. I mean, you're not going to get customers coming back because you've got a, a funky-looking vehicle in your in your parking lot. They're going to keep coming back if you do a good job. And, and I've personally never brought my shoes there or been a customer there, but I've heard that uh, people swear by him and, and they swear by the quality that he does. Absolutely, and it's that work ethic that has gotten him so far. He, I thought it was pretty amazing. He bought his first shoe shop when he was 16? Yeah, he grew up in uh, Southern California in L.A., and in a family of shoe repair guys, basically, and a lot of you know cousins and uncles had stores around the LA area. And he, from the time when he was about eleven or twelve till he was about sixteen years old, he worked three jobs, is what he told me. You know, delivering papers in the morning before school. Then he'd go to school. Then he would take the bus to his uncle's or cousin's shop or something like that to work at a shoe repair store. Then he'd go home for dinner, and then he would go work at a grocery store. And so he eventually stopped all that because I think it was probably just too much, which uh, is kind of understandable. Right. Uh, <laughs> Get to work, Mr. Goalie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and when he was 16, he bought his first shoe repair store from his uncles, from one of his uncles, and started doing that and eventually built up a chain of, I think, four or five stores in the L.A. area and then bought another one in West L.A. And his chain in the L.A. area was called the Cobbler's Bench. And then he bought a store that he said was a very high-grossing store. They made a lot of money there from a guy who had uh, it was a shop in West L.A. And he basically just focused on that. And he sold off a couple of his older ones and closed a couple of them down and, and really just focused on that and ran that for, you know, 20 25 years or so. Uh, and then he retired in 2005. He sold that store in 05, moved to Anthem here in Henderson to retire. But then he got bored because as he told me, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't golf, and he doesn't gamble. So there really was what, what else is there to do? Yeah, exactly. So there, <laughs> as he saw, there was not, there was, uh, as he saw, there was nothing for him to do. So he opened up another store. And within a couple of years, he was just going gangbusters. That's amazing. And yeah. that's sort of the overwhelming thing we saw in these profiles of these small businesses. Let's talk about Lotus of Siam. That their success, again, is attributed to the hard work of several employees, but particularly the woman in charge. Absolutely, yeah. Sapin Shutima, she's the chef and co-owner with her husband, Suchet. Uh, and this place, if you haven't heard of it, it is an absolute institution in Vegas. Uh, it is located in what could polite, politely be described as a, uh, you know, kind of a so-so strip mall in a not-so-great area of Sahara Avenue, just a couple miles east of the Strip. And they, the, the family bought it in 99. It was an existing Thai restaurant, also called Lotus of Siam. And they came in, they changed the menu. And within a year, uh, Jonathan Gold, who was a very well-known food critic at the time for, um, well, still is, but at the time he was writing for Gourmet Magazine, 
wrote just a glowing review in, in this magazine, a national magazine about Lotus of Siam. He called it the best Thai restaurant in North America. That's and, something. Oh, my God. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, you couldn't ask for, for better publicity. And basically, ever since then, the place has just been packed. And it's turned into one of the most popular Thai restaurants in, in the country easily. That's incredible, and it's a f- still a mom-and-pop family-run oh, yeah. operation. Yep, Saipin, the, the wife, she is back in the kitchen every day. She, it's her recipes, her family's recipes, and she, she works every day. Her husband works every day. They've got a couple of daughters who have helped out over the years, too. And uh, it's, it's truly a, a mom-and-pop operation, and they, they do very well. I mean, they, they didn't give me sales figures, but uh, if you go in there pretty much any time of day, it's just packed, and the food's outstanding. Absolutely. I was just going to say well-deserved because yeah. it's delicious. Yeah, so. it really is. Well, that's all the time we have this week, but thanks so much, Eli. You're welcome. Thank you, Don. We'll have you back next week, I'm sure. Great. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up with the Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. You can follow our coverage at VegasInc.com and TheLasVegasSun.com. I'm your host, Ellen Goldberg. Thanks to Steven Zeller, our producer, and the entire KUNV team. And thanks to you for listening. Enjoy your day.